Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Aaron. Hi, everyone. My name is Aaron, and I am a compulsive overeater and a 100-pounder. Thank you very much, Nikki. Happy birthday, Alexandra. Congratulations to all of the chip takers. We had a lot of them. Um, it's too bad we can't have them on the podcast. And thank you very much for asking me to speak here tonight, Andrea. This is an honor to be able to stand at this podium and to talk to my fellows. Um, I think I said it the last time I did the podcast, but it's funny to talk to a room full of people who gave you recovery about and, and tell them what they gave you, um, as if you're the one coming up with it the entire time. I'm going to pass my photos around. Um, if you're on the podcast, if you're listening to some podcast, it'll take a while for them to get over to you. But um, I can do the numbers. Uh, the numbers are, I came into program in the fall of 2011. Um, I bummed around the rooms for a short while looking for some kind of solution to I didn't know what. I didn't really care how much I weighed at the time, and I weighed over 300 pounds. Um, I did know that people kept telling me there was this thing we do in the LA Intergroup called Thanksgiving in the Park, where on Thanksgiving morning, people get together at the park, we do a big meeting, we usually have three big shares, and we have open sharing so that people can go to these, you know, binge fests, or what we like to call amateur day, um, (laughs) with some serenity and some connection, and they know that they've got support and they've got fellows. And that just sounded like no way that I wanted to spend my Thanksgiving that first year that I came in. That was going to interfere with what I wanted to do with Thanksgiving. So I skipped that, um, went through what my first sponsor, uh, Jeff M., calls the Bermuda Triangle, which is uh, Thanksgiving, whatever your winter holiday is, and New Year's. Um, Actually, I think Halloween's in there somewhere. Um, I came out the other end, and I was still more miserable than ever, and the weight was just piling on, and I could not stop eating. Um, My absence date is February 1st of 2012, and since that date, I have lost 116 pounds. And because I think it's important, I need to say that my lightest weight was 169, my last weigh-in was 199, And being that close to the evil two at the front of the number bugs the crap out of me. I do not like it. But I spent the first three years in this program being reminded constantly that that number on that scale has nothing to do with who I am. And I can talk about, I'm going to talk about half an hour now about all the things that program has given me. And if I were to let that one number on that scale take all of those things away, I would be the most ungrateful, sorry person I could possibly imagine. OA did save my life. It's why I dress up when I come to speak. This program can save your life. And I believe that if you've gotten here, your life needs saving. So I'm going to talk a bit about what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. Um, I did the thing I swore I would never do when I started being asked to leave, which is I actually made notes about what I want to share about. And it's funny because we'll see how my plan and God's plan measure up right now. (laughs) At some point, I think it was when I was maybe seven years old, I have a memory of being at a party. 
and I have a memory of everybody else being very eager to run away from the table and go play games. And I didn't understand why anyone was leaving that table when there was still cake on it. (laughs) And I wanted to stay and have as much of that cake as I possibly could. And I recognized at that point somehow that I was different than other people. And I had to start wrestling with this idea of what it means to be like other people. And someone came along and said, well, here, have an extra piece of cake and then go play. And I did. And I wasn't having as much fun as everybody else. I wasn't enjoying it the way they were. Along the way, people kept telling me things like, well, the point of life is to figure out what you enjoy and do that. But what I enjoyed didn't seem to be what everybody else did. What I kept spending my time doing wasn't what other people kept spending their time doing. And it didn't take long for me to hit an age where it suddenly became important to me that when I looked around, I didn't have a lot of friends. I actually had a reputation, I thought. Since I didn't have a lot of friends and I wasn't spending a lot of time socializing with other people of my age, this reputation, I'm convinced, existed entirely in my own head. But that reputation was, I'm the fat, weird kid, and nobody wants to talk to me. And very shortly after that, I got to the age where I wanted, I I met a girl, and I liked her. And she did not like me back. And other people did not seem confused as to why that was. And so... I had to start wrestling with this idea that what I liked to do or what I spent my time doing made me different than everybody else in a way that made life not as much fun. And I didn't understand it. I was a kid. There was no possible way I was going to understand it. I couldn't understand most of the things going on around me in the world. And no one else in my world at that time had any idea what Overeaters Anonymous was. Most of them didn't have an idea of what addiction was. They didn't know that addiction could apply to food. And I'll explain how this all ties in later. What I knew was that the world felt really, really mean. And the world felt very unfair to me, personally. And eventually, I lost something. Maybe it was that girl. Maybe it was some guy came into class and he was like the the pride and joy of the entire school because he'd run a race or he'd done something really cool. And I hadn't done anything like that. At some point, I got really worked up about something and said, damn it, I'm going to change this now. And if I put all of my willpower behind it, if I put all of my effort behind it, I could drive the number on that scale down a little bit. I went into my first commercial diet program when I was 12 years old. And it worked so fast. You put me on a meal plan and you give me absolutely no other options but to eat that food. My weight just falls off. It always has. What happened was I was never going to walk into my school at the end of that summer with those commercial diet program boxes of food and have people make fun of me the way that I felt they always had. So I quit that program and I went back to my old ways and the weight came back and nobody understood what was going on. That process of I'm going to figure this out myself because nobody else seems to know it just got repeated over and over and over again in my life. I tried every creative power I had to come up with what is the magic solution. At a certain point, I started having really deep, weird arguments with God. At a certain point, I thought the solution was, maybe if I pretend really hard not to want this thing, God will give it to me. I developed a firm belief that if 
I knew what I wanted and I went after it, it would be denied to me. And I built up these weird, mystical, magical rules for the entire world. I can't wear that color shirt on Tuesdays. That makes people not like me. One of my favorites that came about in my 20s, and I want to share it from the podium because I do think that there is a strong connection, or I do think it's important to share, and I apologize if it makes anyone uncomfortable. At a certain point in my life, because I was not having as much success as I thought I should have with women, when I did finally have a girlfriend or somebody that was willing to sleep with me, I started having unprotected sex with them. When people found out I was doing this, they said to me, are you crazy? You could get a disease. Do you really know this person? How much time have you guys dated? My answer in my twisted, weird, illogical, mystical thinking was, well, I don't know. It seems like it would be really unfair of God to give me a disease. I mean, as a fat guy, I don't get a lot of sex. So if I was going to get a disease from what little sex I'm having, that just means like it would be really crappy of God. So I'm just going to say, you know what? It's just not going to happen because that would suck. I know people who have tons more sex than me, and they're disease-free. That was how I was walking through my life. Because the world was not making any sense, and I started to not make sense right along with it. I repeated this circle, this, this little wheel, over and over and over again until at the age of 30... And this is the part of my story that always wakes people up and they say I must be lying. Till it's the age of 30, I was given the opportunity to run away with the circus and I took it. I was a stagehand for a traveling circus for a year. I lived on a train. When people ask me about it today, they say, why did you do that? I mean, other people surely have the opportunity. What made you do it? Were you thinking of a life in that? I said, no. But the world had never made any sense to me. So at some point you start thinking, maybe I'm one of the weirdos. Maybe I am one of the crazy people that just will never fit in, and i got to go hang out with the other freaks. I'm the least freaky person that ever went to that circus. It was really difficult. Um, at the end of that little adventure, and this is one of the reasons I bring up the, the sexual behaviors, I wound up with a woman who had called me up to say that she was pregnant with my child. And I realized that I was now responsible for something that wasn't me. Now, I want to step one step back, because to explain what program has done for me, I need to share. Leading up to that moment, I spent most of my days smoking cigarettes, eating as much food as I could get away with without people making fun of me. And as I traveled around this beautiful country, what I did was I looked up pawn shops that were going to be in the cities that we were in, and I looked up gun control laws because I was shopping around for a gun to kill myself. Because life just sucked. And I'd never found anything that made it comfortable, happy, joyous, or free. Because I ran away with the circus thinking, maybe if I go there, I'll find the woman who's going to be just as crazy as I am. We'll, we'll meet in that magical place, and, she'll, and, and then I'll finally find love and acceptance and everything I've ever wanted, and, and that'll be my happy ending. And the happy ending was not showing up, and life was getting scary. And I just kept going back and forth about what is the least messy way I can end my life that will actually make sure I end my life. Jumping off the train while it was in motion kept coming up, but I was terrified I wouldn't do the job. So this child that came into my life gave me something to live for. I was allowed to beat the crap out of myself 
but I was not going to fail this little girl. So we brought, she moved, the, the woman moved in with me and my family back here. I started going back to my old career where I actually make the kind of money that you could send somebody to college on eventually. We raised the kid through a year of drama and fighting and turmoil. I was shoveling food in my face faster than ever. The weight was going up. But who cares? Because I'm a hero. Because I'm doing God's work. And nobody cares what I look like as long as I can keep that little girl alive, safe, happy, and get her an education someday. And hopefully give her a better chance at life than me. The first moment I remember thinking there must be something bigger going on that I'm not getting was holding that child... And I had the thought, I can get you to 15. And after that, I have no idea how to have a successful life. I can get you through high school. But I never went to college. I didn't go after any of my dreams. I didn't accomplish anything I set out to accomplish. So after that, you're kind of going to have to go find people smarter than me. Then I found out the kid was never mine. That was when I said to myself, I'm acting crazy. And I'm not paying any attention to anything going on in my life. When I talk about things like like the irrational thoughts around sex behavior, when I talk about winding up in this situation where somebody has lived in my house for over a year, I've known this person for seven years, and they can lie to my face and I can't even tell. Whatever I was on was better than alcohol. Whatever I was on had me more stoned than any drug I've ever tried. Because I could not see reality sitting right in front of me. Crazy person, living in my house with my family. And the second we started to figure out what was going on, we started to put up boundaries and barriers, things got really brutal. That's when threats came out, like, I'm going to say that your cousin molested the kid if you don't do what I want, if you don't give me your car, if you don't move out and let me keep the apartment. Things got really twisted. So I finally did have to leave that situation. And along the way, God brought me to Overeaters Anonymous. And the way he brought me here was I looked at my therapist who I had gotten while I was on the circus train and I said, I don't trust my own brain, which means I don't trust anything. Because my brain's the only thing I ever have trusted. It's the only thing that's ever made the number on the scale go down. It's the only thing that's ever gotten me my job. It's the only thing that ever made a woman like me long enough to sleep with me one or two times. Now that I can't trust my brain, I don't know what to do with myself. And she believed in 12 steps and she said, I know what you can do. You go find people whose brains are working. You go find people who have problems like yours and you talk to them about how they're solving them. You're lucky you find somebody who's already solved them. So I went looking up 12-step programs and as I like to say, if you've listened long enough, you know that I qualified for a bunch of them. (laughs) And you've been listening carefully. Um, I'm in two of like the seven I need. Um, And I walked in the door And Michelle R., who's sitting right in front of me, was the first person who ever spoke to me after a meeting. And I was not honest with her because she said, you know, so what are you looking for? And I said, well, I've tried all the diets, I've tried all the stuff, and the weight goes down, but then it comes back, so I must be doing something wrong. But what I'm really thinking is, I don't have a reason to be alive anymore, and I don't know how I would be alive anyway. Like, I don't know how I would do it if I did have one. So I bummed around the rooms and people talked about always needing to eat in the way that I always did. People talked about some of the crazy thoughts they had that were just like my thoughts. And after going through that Bermuda Triangle one last time, my therapist said, have you ever heard of a 30 and 30? And I decided I was going to go to a meeting a day for 30 days. 
And by the end of that, I picked a, sto- a, a, a sponsor, Jeff M. I stalked him. I asked people, what meetings do you see Jeff M. at? Okay, I'm going to go find those. <laughs> made my way over to the 7.30 a.m. Hill Street meetings, finally got a hold of him, got his number, called him up and said, I want to talk to you about how you sponsor. He told me how he works the steps and what he does every day in order to maintain his sobriety. He said, and then call me every once in a while and just let me know what's going on with you. So every day at 9 a.m. I called him for the next two years. <laughs> I talked to his voicemail a lot. I say that because I hear a lot of people going, my sponsor just left it go to voicemail. Well, thank God you've got a voicemail. <laughs> I didn't used to have a voicemail to call into. And Jeff M. told me to go to the big book. He told me to open it up to the pages that nobody reads. Jeff M. led at Kitchen Sink, so this is kind of the, the rehash. Um, the pages nobody reads are the ones that aren't even important enough to get real numbers. They get little lowercase Roman numerals. They obviously aren't interesting. Um, and in those pages, you're going to find the doctor's opinion. And if I open up the doctor's opinion, what I find out is that alcoholics figured out that after a while, they develop a weird reaction to alcohol. The reaction is not that they have swelling. The reaction is not that their face turns purple. Their reaction is not um, something very easily observable. The reaction is they want more of it. That's what I have. I have an allergy to certain food substances that once I eat them, I cannot be comfortable unless I am continuing to eat them. Just constantly. Just keep going. Just get more of this and just get more of that. That is what was going on back at that birthday party when I was seven. That is what kicked me out of normal relationships with normal people for 30 years of my life. I cannot be comfortable if I eat my alcoholic foods. It is impossible for me. It is a physical fact of my life. It is as true as I cannot eat a gummy bear and tell my stomach, by the way, pretend that was a salad. (laughs) That's what I'm doing if I eat my alcoholic foods and say, maybe this time. Maybe this time I can will my way through it. So then I start going through the steps, and that's step one. I have an allergy, and it is something that I cannot control, ever. No amount of willpower or special thinking or psychotherapy will ever take that away from me. That is my special gift from the universe. I've got an allergy. Step two says, you're going to need somebody else to help you get through this. And I figured that part out, too, because I walked into the rooms. Then step three says, now, imagine there's something big and powerful and turn your life over to it. And I say, you want me to turn my life over to the crappy thing that gave me this allergy in the first place? If I told you what that crappy thing did to me for the last 30 years, why am I going to do that? Now, recently, I had an interesting idea about that thought, that little argument. That's my addict talking. That is a part of my brain that for 30 years has thought about nothing but ways to talk me in to eating my alcoholic foods. I have 30 years of practice feeling different, trapped, less than, stupid, weak, immoral, and different. Exile. My brain thinks that way. Anyone could tell me anything, and my first thought is, are you trying to kick me out of the world? I've been kicked out of the world before. (laughs) Didn't like it. But that's what happens. I just have habits in my thought process. So somebody comes up and gives me this golden key and says, you're not dead. 
you got out of that kid situation, you've got a room full of people who are willing to listen to you complain about your problems for three minutes every single day. <laughs> you got people who will take your phone calls. You got people who will let you ask them stupid questions like, okay, I, I have no pasta on my food plan, but I've, I've been invited out to ramen. Is ramen noodles pasta? <laughs> You've got all of that going for you right now. But you're so used to thinking, I'm different, I'm cursed, I'm not normal, that you'll, you'll, you'll discount all of it and say, God never gave me anything. My favorite thing in the rooms is when people say, I was late for an appointment, but a parking spot opened up and that convinced me there was God. And I always want to picture God sitting there going, I gave you the sun, I gave you the, the earth, I gave you the entire economic system that you live under, I gave you democracy, I gave you this country, I gave you a language to talk to your fellows in, I gave you cars, I gave you businesses, I gave you appointments, and I gave you a skill set, but yeah, I gave you the parking space too, whatever it takes. <laughs> All of these things, and I'm so used, thank you, I'm so used to not having gratitude for any of it that I just automatically discount it in a moment and say, yeah, but what have you done lately? What have you done for me lately, God? And that's step three. So now I've got to start learning new habits if I'm going to successfully get out of this hole because I'm about 20 years behind on the game of how to be an adult and I'm going to have to start training my brain to think in an entirely new way. I'm going to have to start training my brain that it's not allowed to think that's crappy advice just the first time you hear it called contempt prior to investigation. I'm going to have to train my brain on a word called acceptance, which I actually, because of my first sponsor, Jeff M. and his love of the dictionary, looked up recently. And acceptance, it turns out, means to receive with favor. And it means when you accept something, you acknowledge that it is good. That's not how I usually accept things. I usually accept things with a generous amount of contempt, and I let them know that they're allowed to have that little tiny part of the world where they currently exist, but if they step out of line just once, I'm going to go after them. I usually accept things with a fair amount of silent scorn. I love that phrase, because I am one of the guiltiest people in the world when it comes to silent scorn. I love to call my sponsor and say, I, I, I saw my ex, and I didn't say anything mean to them. I didn't look their way, meet their eyes, say hello, acknowledge their presence, or in any way allow them to exist in the same room I was in, but I didn't say anything mean. So I'm obviously working an incredibly strong program. <laughs> so how am I going to train my brain? Turns out we got steps for that. First thing I got to do is I got to learn how to look at myself. And I got to learn how to look at my behaviors. And I got to make an honest list of my resentments, my fears. I got to look at my sex behaviors. I got to look at the way I actually exist in the world. I got to write it all down. And I got to just be honest with myself and God and another human being about it. That's four and five. Why? Because other people are not checked out as they go through their lives and they know these things about themselves. I don't. Every discomfort I ever had, I checked out of. I've shared it before, but I love sharing it again. When I was heavy, no woman on earth was ever allowed to reject me because we had different goals, because we wanted different things, because we had different sense of humor, because I wasn't mature enough. None of those reasons. She wasn't allowed to reject me because she was afraid of commitment, because she had parent issues, or I had parent issues. Nope. That's the one reason anybody was ever allowed to reject me. I was fat and she was shallow. 
every relationship that ever ended was because I'm fat and she's shallow. She may talk to and be friends with a fat guy. She's not going to end up with one. She may go on a date or two and even make out with a fat guy. She's not going to end up with one. That's her rule. She may even go to bed with a fat guy once or twice. Why not? We all need stories to tell. But she's not going to end up with one. That's my thinking. That's how I walked through the world. That's why every breakup was immediately followed by a diet. Because the number on the scale is the thing that I'm fighting. So I go through four and five and I figure out what's going on in my world. And then I come up with a list of character defects out of that in six and seven. Here's my favorite thing about six and seven. I know a lot of people who do things, I've never tried them, where they say six and seven, you know, I look at my character defects every day and I work against them. That was not how I was taught. The big book tells me all those defects, they're God's job. Your job is to look for opportunities to act without them. Is to look for places in the world where the defects are not showing up and, and pursue those. Redirect your attention. I read a great little pamphlet whenever I'm having trouble that says, we believe in what is called scientific prayer. It's prayer as an action as opposed to any kind of actual faith. I don't pray because I necessarily know what God is or think God's doing anything for me, but when I pray, my life is better. So I do it. And I let the world, I, I accept that the story is going to go on. I got more to learn. I may not know the reason for things today. When I've been selfish, when I've been shallow, when I've been lustful, when I've been stupid, when I've been dishonest, I pray to God, you know what? I'm feeling the shame of these things. I'm feeling how these are not working for me. I'd, I'd love to see a day where these don't come up. And I wait for those days and I appreciate them when they come back. Then I do eight and nine. Sometimes I am shallow, dishonest, selfish, mean, hurtful. I have to go make amends. I have in this very room, while being serving as secretary, had somebody call me an asshole. <laughs> very angrily and loudly. And I called my sponsor. I said, I just, I just got called an asshole. I'll just try to be of service to the program. And he says, oh, great. Time to sit down and do an inventory. I hung up the phone. I looked at Lisa and I said, I just, I just got called an asshole. And now I have homework. <laughs> I don't see how that's fair. And she said, welcome to recovery. When I have a problem, I call my sponsor. When I have something where I think I might need to make an amends, my sponsor tells me how to inventory it, how to determine what an appropriate amends is, and then I go and I make it. You do a big one of those after you do your inventories and while you're first working the steps, and then they become common practice as you go on. Because step 10 tells us we continue to take those inventories, and when we're wrong, we promptly admit it. And then step 11 tells us that now that you know how to behave like an adult, which I didn't know before I got here, now that you have, you, you get to walk through life in the same mystery as everybody else and wonder what it's all about. You no longer get to have the handle. You no longer get to run the show. You no longer get to, to know the secret reason everybody's doing everything. You get to wonder about it and you get to experience your emotions around it. One of my favorite moments in program, I called one of my fellows and I said, oh man, I am struggling. He said, all right, brother, tell me what's going on. And I told him, I'm feeling this. I'm really confused by work. I think, I think the guy I'm working with is talking crap to me to the bosses. I think they're are, are honestly thinking about firing me. I don't like the job anyway, but I don't want to get fired. I'd rather quit. I got this girl who, who one, I got one girl who, who broke up with me and I still don't know why. And I got this other girl who seems interested. She's not good the first girl. And I don't know what to do about that. And I got, I'm trying to do this running thing and I can't figure out where the meals are supposed to fall. If I do a 17 mile run while training for a marathon and what I'm supposed to do here, I do the whole thing. And he goes, are you eating? I said, no, my meal plan's locked down. I don't touch it. I don't, I don't go anywhere else. He goes, okay, what you're experiencing is called life. <laughs> These are called the normal emotions that human beings have to deal with. Welcome. 
Enjoy them. This is life. This is what you do. So what you do with them is you try to keep yourself from working back up into your old addict head. Because so, you do have it. I have 30 years of experience thinking the old way. Thinking this new way is brand new to me. If I get worked up, if I get myself into an emotional state that I just don't know what's going on, my brain will take the path of least resistance and it will dive back into the old thoughts. If I let a resentment really burn me up, if I let a fear consume me, I will dive back into that old behavior. I will not have control over it. Our behaviors come out of the way we're thinking. I have to keep forcing myself to take the next right indicated action to keep myself from thinking the old way. That is how I maintain my sobriety. I do not pray and meditate because I want to be a saint. I pray and meditate because I don't want to eat my alcoholic foods. And that is it. And that brings us to step 12. And why I show up here today, and why I sponsor, and why I will take any outreach call that comes my way, and why I will tell anyone what my food plan is. And I'll, if anybody, even at work, says, how did you lose all that weight? I say, I am in a 12-step program that treats food the way alcoholics treat alcohol. I do not do this because I think it makes me look cool. I do not do this because I am the Mother Teresa of OA and I am just dying to get out there and tell everybody that I'm a 12-stepper. Although sometimes I have to clear it up because sometimes I say I'm in a 12-step program and that's all they hear and then rumors go around the office that I'm a heroin dealer. <laughs> it's, it's really annoying. Like the, the funnier one for me was I had the treasury from one of the meetings and it turns out that out in the real world when you're not a 12-stepper, people wonder what you're doing with that many ones. <laughs> Awkward as hell. Um, so, you know, I have sponsees. I've had sponsees come and I've had sponsees go. My only obligation to them is I answer the question, how do I work my program? I have sponsees who come back to me and say, you know, none of, I, none of that stuff worked. Now, nine times out of ten, I say, which of those things did you do? And they tell me one out of ten suggestions they followed. And I say, so your way doesn't work. And I say, no, my way works fine. I'm abstinent. <laughs> And I will tell you every day how I stay abstinent. I will always be the same answer because it is what is working for me. If you have a problem that I have never encountered, I can't help you. I wish I could. If you have a problem that you tried my solution and it didn't work, I am sorry. It does work for me. And my obligation is to be honest with you about what's working, my, what's working in my program. And if you want to work this program really well, you find a sponsor that you will listen to. You find a sponsor that you do believe you can tell them absolutely anything going on in your life. God love Jeff M. He has heard me talk about things that, guess what, most guys don't talk about. Because they do, because they've confused me. And he has sat there lovingly and patiently, and he's given me his best advice, and he has told me when, he, when we've reached the end of what he knows how to do, and he's said, maybe it's time to pick up the phone and call some other fellows. And that's how I work my program. Almost everybody in this room at one point or another has been my sponsor. <laughs> if you took my outreach call, you're my sponsor. Because I called you up, I said, I don't know what to do, will you tell me? And you did. You said, tell me what you're going through. So I was, I was honest. You told me what experience you had that helped you get through that. Or you were honest and said you didn't have it. And in that phone call, I got to stay abstinent. I got to do something other than go back to my food. It is an absolute privilege to be a part of this program. It can save your life. The food and the weight are not what you're controlling you. And I really hope you all find what you came here looking for. Thank you.